We'll be beginning today in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll read the first seven verses. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me! For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. And thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. I've often thought about dying. The older I get, the more I think about it. And some people have a last will and testament. Some people, I know Lindsay was a big letter writer. Some people write letters to their loved ones. For them to read after they die. But if I knew that I was not going to make it out that set of doors today, this is what I would have to say to you, my friends and family. Christ in his prayer to the Father before his crucifixion in John 17 said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now out of the thousands of different religions in the world today, there is only one true religion, And that is the one that acknowledges Jesus Christ as the only true Savior and His Father as the only true God. But some would say, well, that condemns the majority of the world, and they would be right. But thank God that it does not condemn the entire world. For God has chosen a people before the foundation of this world, and they will be given faith in Christ, and they will be brought to a saving knowledge of Him. And we'll look at that in just a bit. I've titled this message, Five Things You Must Know. The first is this, that we just read about. God Almighty is holy. 
unimaginably, infinitely holy. Now, we in our natural state cannot begin to imagine who the God of this universe truly is. Everyone has their idea of God. They have their idea of a deity. But most of those gods are some that they can control, that they can bend to their will. Their idea of God is someone who thinks that they are trying their best and they're not nearly as bad as they could be and heaven knows they're not nearly as bad as a lot of other folks and some folks folks picture a God who's much like an aged grandfather who might get angry at you for not doing the right thing might holler but really isn't able to do much about your misbehavior but as someone once said your thoughts of God are much too human The true and living God demands perfection, absolute, never-failing perfection every second of your life in order for you to enter into this place called heaven. And of course, you're thinking, if that's the case, no one is going to enter into heaven. And in and of themselves, you'd be correct. But God has provided a way for those who are constantly overtaken by sin, to still be able to enter into His holy presence. And as I said, we'll look at that in just a few minutes. The Lord gave this commandment to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 19.2. He said, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now what do we mean when we say that God is holy? It means that He is just, and right, and perfect in goodness and righteousness. That everything He does is just and right. The Scriptures tell us that He is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. To say that God is holy means that there is no flaw or shortcoming in anything He does. That everything He does, no matter what man may think of it, is just and right. And it is done in strict accordance with His unbending law and righteousness. And this same perfection that He demands from those who would worship Him. But obviously we cannot produce anything near that sort of holiness. But how is it then that men and women can hope to one day see this place called heaven? And as I said, we'll look at that in a few minutes. But first, there's a second thing that you must know. That in and of yourself, you are not now or ever can be holy. And if you're like me, you have to admit that's true. That every breath you take, every thought you think, is only corruption. But in case you won't admit what you truly are in your innermost being, the Scriptures tell you what you are at heart. Now the heart in Scriptures is referred to as the innermost being of a man or a woman the place from which all actions and thoughts originate. And in Jeremiah, we're warned about the human heart. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Not just wicked, but desperately wicked. Turn with me, please, to the book of Matthew. Matthew 15, this 
is a text where our Lord is speaking of this very thing, of the heart of man. Matthew 15. In verse 11, our Lord says, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. All the alcohol you can drink, all the drugs you can take, will not make you any worse than you are by nature. Your heart is as corrupt as it can possibly be, and there's nothing you can do to make it any better. But his disciples didn't understand what our Lord meant here. So Peter asked, in verse 15, he says, Declare unto us this parable. Lord, explain what you mean by this. And our Lord replied in the next verse and said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do ye yet not understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceedeth out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. And this is the reason that you don't have to teach your children to lie, to be sneaky, to be deceitful. So if your heart is polluted and desperately wicked, you cannot expect anything good to come out of you. A poison well can only produce poison water. But just in case you're still hoping that your so-called righteousness might have some standing before a holy God. Let me read something to you out of Isaiah. This is a text that we're familiar with. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses, not our bad stuff that we do, this is our God speaking of the good stuff that you do, or at least that you think you do, for all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now please understand that these filthy rags, which our God compares our righteousness to, is not a dirty rag that you would use to clean the house. It's not the filthy, oily, greasy rags that you would find in a mechanic shop. No, our God uses the most vile thing to which to compare our righteousness. He compares him to a used menstrual cloth that a woman would use during her time of the month. You do not wash those out and remove the filth. You dispose of them. Same thing with your righteousness. In Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 33, deal with this subject of a woman during her time of what the scriptures call an issue of blood. And 12 times in those verses, she is referred to as being unclean. The same word that the scriptures use to describe a leper. And this is what our God wants you to understand. That the very best you can produce, what you refer to as your righteousness, 
cannot be cleaned up enough to make it fit to be acceptable to Him. You are and always will be unclean until God makes you otherwise. Isaiah fifty-seven twelve, our Lord tells you this, I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. Your righteousness must be disposed of, and you must rely on the righteousness of another, on the righteousness of a substitute. The third thing you must know, you are going to die. Now when people hear that, they would say, well, certainly I'm going to die. Everybody is going to die. Everyone dies. But I want to impress upon you this fact, that you very well may die today. I once heard Henry Mahan speaking of this, and he said that you could ask a 90-year-old man, a 98-year-old man, when he gets up in the morning, you think you're going to die today? And he'll say, nope, I think I have a few good days left. And Henry was right when he made that statement. But none of us have a promise of tomorrow, which is why we read in 2 Corinthians 6 and verses 1 and 2. It says, We then as workers together with him beseech ye also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Hebrews 3 tells us this, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. These verses are a warning not to despise the goodness of God. God tells us here in these verses how He destroyed an entire generation of Israelites because they despised His Word and held it in contempt. They hardened their hearts against all that was right and good, and God left them to perish in the wilderness. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you can come to God when you feel like the time is right and you need to get things straightened out. I plead with you to not trifle with the God of this universe. You do so at the peril of your own soul. You will not play God for a fool, and when it comes time to die, think you're going to get right with God. Galatians 6-7 gives us a warning. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now when these verses tell us that a man shall reap corruption, 
It means that your eternal end will be a fate of dying, but never being dead, of eternally cursing the God that you now despise in this life. There's an old saying that actions have consequences. The older you get, the more you realize that's true. Your actions, your doings, your so-called righteousness will end in a misery beyond anything the human mind can comprehend. But the actions of Christ on behalf of lost men and women also have consequences. He said this, Whosoever believeth on me shall never die. And he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. We read in Second Chronicles, verse 36, of how God sent his messengers to the people of Israel, and the people despised the message that was sent. Starting in verse 15 of Second Chronicles 36, we read this, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them messengers, as he does today, arising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words, misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, and there was no remedy. And so it will be with everyone that hears the truth of Christ crucified and despises the message of God's grace towards sinners. There may come a time in your life when salvation is past. The God who was once willing to save is no longer willing. Let me read something in Proverbs chapter 1. Turn there with me. Speaking of this very thing, those that despised the goodness of God and His messengers, this is what God will do to those men and women. Don't be fooled into thinking God loves everyone and wants everyone to come to the knowledge of His Son. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 26. I'm sorry, starting in verse 23. Turn you at my reproof. This is our Lord speaking. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit unto you, I will make known my words unto you, because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said it not, all my counsel, and would, none of my reproof. This is God speaking. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Today God sends his messengers to men and women and proclaims there is salvation to be found. But it's to be found not in your righteousness, but in a substitute. This substitute called in the scriptures, Jesus Christ,
the righteous. Paul wrote of this to the Corinthians. He said, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now when I say you're going to die, you need to understand that not only will this body die and go into the ground, but you have an eternal soul that will never die. God warns men and women throughout His Word that there is a life after this. That there's no such thing as reincarnation where you get to come back and try things a second time and maybe do it a little better. And we've learned through scientific research that every man and woman has a unique fingerprint. They have unique DNA. They have a unique iris. Even what we call identical twins share none of these traits. So is it so hard to believe that you also have a unique soul? A soul that will never die. The fourth thing that you need to know is this. Your soul, your undying eternal soul, will spend eternity in one of two places. Now the concept of eternity is impossible for human beings to really comprehend that there never was a beginning, there never will be an end. Everything and everyone we've ever known has had a beginning and either has had or will have an end. But one of the things that's most terrifying about this place we call hell is that there will be no end to the suffering whose fate it is or whose fate it is for folks that end up there. All the horrors of all the torture chambers throughout history combined cannot begin to be compared with this place we call hell. I'm convinced that if we were to see into the pit of the damned at this time, even for a few seconds, the human mind would never recover. That madness would be your lot for the rest of your life. Our Lord talked of the fire that is not quenched, never ending. I think sometimes of those folks in the Twin Towers on 9-11 those that were burning to death and chose to jump some of them 80, 90 stories to their death onto a concrete sidewalk. So how bad is the suffering of fire that if the better choice is to jump to your death? But the sad thing is, more than likely, Most of those folks jumped out of the fire in those towers straight into the fires of hell. You and I have both heard men and women joke about partying with their friends in hell, but that makes about as much sense as saying that those folks in the towers were partying with their friends. There is no desire to party when you're suffering excruciating pain. Now the fifth and last thing you must know is this, and I want to spend a little bit more time here than I did on the first four subjects. There is only one way to be saved from eternal ruin. Christ said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is not a thing. Salvation is a person. Now so far, much of what I've said has been concerning God's judgment 
and the punishment of men and women who rebel against him. But I want more than anything to make sure that you know this God who will by no means clear the guilty has made a way for you to escape eternal ruin and spend eternity in his blessed presence. And this way can be summed up in one word, substitution. The God that we worship is not only called a God of love. In 1 John 4, 8, it tells us that God is love. Now, most anyone who spends a little bit of time in church is very familiar with the verse John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And religious folks like to quote that as proof that God loves everybody, the whole world. But if that were the case, one of two things is true. Either everyone in the entire world is going to heaven, which we know is not going to happen, Or number two, God is a complete failure, and the death of Christ was a totally without any merit whatsoever to save anyone. Now you need to understand that when the word world is used in the scriptures, it's used in many different ways. One example I want to give you is found in Luke 2.1, and it says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. Now obviously this did not mean every nation, every man and woman on the face of the earth. The Persian Empire, the Chinese Empire, for instance, were not taxed because they were not under Roman dominion, Roman rule. When it says world there, it meant the Roman world. In the same way, John 3.16 does not mean that God loved the entire world, but the world of his chosen elect people. Isaiah 53 says, For the transgression of my people was he stricken, speaking of Christ. Not for the transgression of all people. If God loved the whole world, it would say for the transgression of all people. But it does not. It says, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Those people whom God the Father chose before the foundation of the world and gave to his Son to redeem Now, if God loved the entire world, we would not find the Lord Jesus Christ saying what he did in John 17 in his prayer to the Father before he was taken to be crucified. Starting in verse 6, we read this. This is our Lord speaking. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept kept thy word. I pray for them, he said. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now, if Christ loved the entire world, every man and woman in it, he would not have said these words, I pray not for the world. He talks about the men which the Father gave him. The scriptures clearly teach that before this world was ever formed, God the Father chose a people who would be His, who would be born over the ages of time, who would one day be given the gift of faith in Christ. Next in this verse, Christ says to the Father, Thine they were, before any of us were ever born, Thine they were, 
Not thine they are, now that they've made the decision to get saved, but thine they were, chosen to be vessels of God's mercy before the world was ever formed. Then he says, and thou gavest them me, those chosen by God the Father, in eternity past, are now given to Christ. He is responsible for their salvation and well-being. Further, there is hope for the lost sinner because we find written in God's word that he delights to show mercy to undeserving lost men and women. This word, the words mercy and merciful are found 297 times in the King James Bible. The word wrath is found 194 times. Proof that God speaks more of His mercy than He does of His wrath. The Psalms are full of references to God's mercy. Let me read just a few verses. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's, of course, from the 23rd Psalm. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. And one of my favorites. For thou, Lord God, art good, ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto them that call upon thee. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Every verse in Psalm 136 concludes with these words, For His mercy endureth forever. And lastly, that blessed verse in Micah seven eighteen, He retaineth not His anger forever. Why? Because He delighteth in mercy. The Scriptures talk of three things in which our God delights. The first, of course, is His blessed Son. The second is his people. And the third he delights in is showing mercy. If I can put that into human terms, these things put a smile on God's face. They make him happy. And the God that we worship is not some monster who rubs his hands together in delight as he casts men and women into hell, but he cannot violate his nature. He cannot violate his own law. He must punish sin. He tells us, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Our God gets no satisfaction whatsoever out of casting men and women into hell, but He must punish sin. But there is a reason to rejoice in the midst of fear. And we're told in God's Word that there is a judgment that took place before the foundation of the world. Christ is called the Lamb Slain from the foundation of the world. In the mind and purpose of God, the judgment for His people's sin has already taken place. But there is an event in time whereby the actual judgment and punishment for the sins of God's people took place. It happened when Christ hung on a Roman cross and suffered the wrath that was due the sins of His chosen people. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Lord... God the Father hath laid on Him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. 
all whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world. And when those iniquities were found on Christ, when our sins were found on Him, He suffered the full, undiluted wrath of an angry God. This is pictured in the account of the scapegoat in Leviticus. Turn there with me. Leviticus 16. Let's read this. Leviticus 16. We're talking of our sins becoming Christ's sins. Leviticus 16. Start reading in verse 7. And it sh- and he shall take the two goats, this is the priest, and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented live before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now dropping down to verse 20. And when he hath made an end to reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat into the wilderness. This is a picture of substitution. A picture of our sins laid on Christ who bore them away into the wilderness of God's forgetfulness. We're told in Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. The blood of Christ is so effectual in wiping out the sins of God's elect that God the Father cannot even remember them anymore. They have been completely annihilated, destroyed so completely that they will never be found again. And there's something else that took place in this great act of substitution. Not only was our sins laid on Christ, but in the same way that He took our sins, so now His righteousness becomes our righteousness. So that when God's law looks upon the people whom Christ died for, those chosen before the foundation of the world, it sees only perfect obedience and holiness. This is the reason that we cling so tenaciously to Christ. A lot of people think, and rightfully so, that religious folks are hypocrites. And I can understand why they think that. Because they say one thing and do another and yet still count on their righteousness to bring them to God. Those that believe in grace, those that believe in substitution, know that is not so. We cling to Christ and His righteousness because He is our only hope. 
We're dependent upon His righteousness to present us faultless before the throne of God. This is spoken of in Jude. It says, Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God and Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. The only righteousness we claim is an imputed righteousness. The righteousness of somebody else. The righteousness of Christ Himself. Before God saves a man or a woman, He teaches them that in and of themselves there is no hope. They have absolutely nothing meritorious to present to God. I spoke of this a few minutes ago about how our how all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So I hope that you are now asking the question, how then can this imputed righteousness be mine? How can I stand before the judgment throne of God and be seen as holy as Christ Himself? Only one way. You need to understand that God Almighty owes you nothing but wrath. The choice of believing on Christ is not your choice. Now those of you that have been in church a long time will find that an astounding statement. But the scriptures clearly declare that without faith it is impossible. Not extremely difficult, but it is impossible to please God. And we're told that that faith is a gift of God. Not something you muster. It is a gift. A gift is something that you do not earn. It is something that is given to you. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. And hopefully you'll be opening a few gifts. And we all know those gifts were purchased by someone else and given to us. So it is with salvation. So it is with faith. It was purchased by another, and it is a gift given to us. Now our Lord told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and whom I will I harden. God does harden the hearts of men and women to the point sometimes where it is impossible for them to believe. Pharaoh was a perfect example of that. And please understand this, that God will be just and right if He condemned the entire human race. But some would protest that such a God is a monster. If that's the case, you had better be prepared to worship a monster. But our God is no monster. He could have just as easily left this entire race to perish, but instead chose a people before the foundation of the world that we are told in the Scriptures are so numerous that they cannot be counted. So the question is, do you feel the need for mercy or you're confident that you're okay on your own? Let me use an illustration to make this point. Now some prisons in the United States still have a death row, not many, but some. And in one particular prison, there's, let's say, 50 inmates sitting on death row. All their appeals 
are already done. They're simply waiting for the day of their execution. But one day word comes down that the governor has issued five pardons. Do you suppose that any of those inmates would say, that is not fair, how, how dare he thinks he can pardon just five of us? No, you can be sure that every one of those inmates is going to be thinking, is it me? Could it possibly be me? Maybe I won't be executed after all. Maybe there's a chance that I might go free. And they think this because it is their only hope to escape death. How about you? Do you feel yourself guilty before God's law? Deserving of eternal punishment. If you do, there is hope that you may yet know the mercy of a sovereign God. The question is not, as modern day religious, religion says, what will you do with Jesus? The question is, what will he do with you? There is one word in the English language which we read that catches God's ear like no other. When Christ was pushing through the mob, I think on his way to Jericho, it said the mob thronged him. It was so packed that he could barely make his way through. But he was pushing his way through that mob until he heard a word. He heard Bartimaeus crying, Now, son of David, have mercy upon me. What's the scripture say? Jesus stood still. Now, if you from your heart are able this, this day to petition God for mercy, if you see yourself condemned before a holy God and you're able to ask Him for mercy, you can be sure that He has begun a good work in you. So to review, there's just five things you need to know. God is holy. You in and of yourself are not and never can be. Number three, you're going to die. Maybe today. Number four, your soul will spend eternity in one of two places. And number five, God is full of mercy and will save a people that He has chosen in eternity past. The question is this, will you be among those chosen ones? I recall a conversation I once had with a lost man about the things of eternity and judgment. And he said to me, I try not to think about it. But trying not to think about it is not the answer. If you were diagnosed with cancer, you certainly wouldn't say, I try not to think about it. If you do, that cancer will eventually claim your life. No, you seek a remedy to that cancer. And if God has awakened your heart today to see yourself as condemned before His holy law, I want you to know one more time to tell you that there is a remedy. And that remedy is found in the finished work and the blood of Christ. May the God of all mercy awaken your heart today and give you life in Christ. Bill, come lead us in a song.